The Hammer Podcast will not be heard this month. In its place, we give you the following special presentation. Legends of the Superheroes! For centuries, the world has been protected by a group of extraordinary men and women who have dedicated themselves to fighting crime. Greetings, and welcome to Legends of the Superheroes, a production of TheHammerStrikes.com, where we talk about live-action versions of your favorite comic book characters. I'm Gene Hendricks, and as you know, this is a show where I like to have guests on, and I am happy to say, proud, I should add, to have as my guests, and the first time they're guesting anywhere, Darren and Ruth Sutherland of Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds. How are you guys? Excellent, Gene. Thank you so much for that great introduction, and we're so happy to be on your show, and we're so happy to be sharing our first guest spot with you. Happy to be here and look forward to the conversation. Yes, and that conversation will take place about Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Not Duck Dodgers, Buck Rogers. Yes. Have to make that distinction because even when I was a kid, if I misheard it, I was like, oh, Daffy Duck, and Mel Blanc's in both, so you can't get confused. Uh That's exactly what I was thinking, is Mel Blanc is in both, so the confusion (laughs) is natural. (laughs) Now, for those of you that don't know, and if you don't, I don't know why you're listening to this show, because I talk about these kind of things all the time. But Buck Rogers was a TV show done by Glenn A. Larson, the same genius behind Battlestar Galactica, and it ran for two seasons between 1979 and 1981. Now, originally it was supposed to be a series of TV movies, not a weekly television show, which is probably why there are so many two-parters in the first season. It starred Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray, who... Now, I, I know I met Aaron Gray a number of years ago, and... Had, when when did you guys meet both of these guys? Well, it's really, it's an interesting story. We actually met them both at the same convention. It would have been in 1998. We just moved to Southern California. Work took us out there. And one of the first weekends that we were there, there was a Babylon 5 convention mm-hmm. celebrating the fifth and final season of that show. And Ruth saw it in the newspaper. We got excited and went out to that. And they had a lot of other, being right there near L.A., they had a lot of other guests that came and joined in. And Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray were both there. So we met them. And at that point in time, they had a really nice photo they were signing that had the two of them with Buster Crab. Oh, nice. We guested. So, of course, he had passed away. It was not signed by him, but the two of them would sign it and talk about him. So we met them then. And then we moved back to the East Coast, where we're from originally, and we go to Dragon Con most every year. And they both come to Dragon Con most every year as well. So Mm -hmm. we see them often now because Gil Gerard actually lives in Georgia, near Atlanta. So it's an easy convention for him to go to. He actually comes as a guest every other year, but he comes every year for a panel he hosts. It's a game show. I think it's uh, it's like the $25,000 or or match game. That's right. It's a match game that he does. So he actually comes and does that every year. And then, of course, Aaron Gray runs Heroes for Hire, which she actually books lots of celebrities. So she's there every year, sometimes as a guest, but sometimes just coordinating and helping her guests. Okay, yeah, I remember it, it had to be the early 2000s when we went to... It was a convention, North Jersey, a smaller one. It's called Slanted Fedora. I don't, I don't even know if they're still around anymore. But they would, they would run like these generic sci-fi conventions. So you would get people like 
people from Star Trek, you would get people from Babylon 5, you get people from Stargate. You know, it's just kind of a, a, a mishmash. But both Aaron Gray and Gil Gerard were at that convention at the time. And I met them both, and I still want to know where the Fountain of Youth is, because I know Aaron Gray has found it. <laughs> I agree with that. She looks as lovely as ever. Yeah, she hasn't aged. I mean, I, I, it's amazing. <laughs> I agree, and I do think she does uh, Tai Chi, like martial arts, and is very willing to teach that to others. Yeah, she does that panel at Dragon Con. She does a Tai Chi every morning, and anyone can come and join her for it, I remember. Yeah, yeah she was doing that at Slam Fedora as well. But I was able, I was lucky enough to meet both of them and at the convention, and I don't think he was necessarily allowed to do this, but Gil Gerard was selling DVD copies of the Buck Rogers movie the theatrical release and so uh, let's see i'm i would turn down a dvd from the hand of buck rogers himself i don't think so especially since at the time you weren't able to get it commercially that's right it's it's a shame how long it took it to come out on dvd and that's actually an interesting story we heard them tell at one of their panels at dragon con one year they actually talked about once it finally came out on dvd a lot of fans were disappointed that there weren't extras on it And the two of them shared the story that they wanted to do extras, and Universal invited them to record commentaries for the episodes and do an interview that would be an extra on it. But Universal was unwilling to pay them, and their thought was, you know, Universal's made money off this show for 30-plus years, and they won't share a penny of it with the two of them to even pay them, you know, one day's wage to come in and record those extras. So that's why there aren't any extras on the DVD set, sadly. That's just amazing. I mean, I've heard of corporations trying to, you know, weasel their way out of having to pay people, but this is specifically for that show. These are the two two stars of the show, and you can't just throw them a day rate just for an interview? That doesn't make any sense. They were both uh, rather offended by it, so that's the reason they were unwilling to do it. They said they would have loved to have done it for the fans, but it was they were a bit offended by it. So instead, they like to go to conventions and talk to the fans there. Well, it, it may not be great for everybody, but I'm glad that they do it, because when I, when I met both of them, they are both very, very nice people. They're willing to talk to you about the show. It's not like they're there just for their, oh, pay me my $20 and get get the line moving. They're both willing to sit and talk if they're, if they're able. And I'm just glad that they're not stuck. Like, it, they feel like they've been typecast and like Adam West used to and William Shatner used to. They used to feel like, well, I can't get away from this role. I hate that role. Neither of them seems like that. They're both happy for the experience. No, I definitely agree with that. It, it's really nice to see how enthusiastic they are when they talk to fans, and uh, Gil Gerard will talk with you as long as you want to stay there. He'll, If he sees you the next day, maybe in someone else's line, he'll remember you and say hello, that type of thing. And Erin Gray is just so sweet, just like you were saying. And I'm sure that's why she's so successful managing the and booking the other stars, because you can tell she just takes very good care of them. She's always checking in with them at their table, seeing if they need anything. They're both super nice. Now, I think everyone connected with a show that wasn't just there for a payday had a good time on it, except for Gil Gerard in the first season. Now, I'm pretty sure you've heard him talk about this, but he wasn't happy originally with how light the show was. Yeah, it's interesting, and sometimes 
you get what what does it say you, they say uh, you know be careful what you ask for because sometime you'll get it yeah he really you know was unhappy with the light tone of the series the first season and he complained about that a lot but then interestingly the changes that were made for the second season which included trying to make the show a bit more serious he really hated even more <laughs> 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 and that's a shame. It but is. It's really interesting. I, I loved the show. So, I mean, it was perfect for me. I was 13 when the original movie came out. And of course, like you mentioned earlier, it was originally planned as a series of TV movies. And you see all of those two-parters, especially really early in season one, that were the original scripts that they planned for the, the two-hour movies. But it was interesting that both NBC and Universal thought the two-hour pilot movie looked so good that they said, hey, let's put it in theaters and just see, because they had actually shown a couple of years before the original pilot film for Battlestar Galactica had played in a few theaters and had done well. So they released it theatrically in the spring just as a test and a promotion. And it's interesting to hear Gil Gerard talk about it because very little fanfare about it, and yet it came out, it was a huge hit. It actually is, I think, the number five top grossing movie of 1979, even though they had to pull it from theaters after just four to six weeks or something like that because it had to come out of the theaters to have time to play on HBO before then it premiered on NBC. So they couldn't leave it in theaters very long, and yet it was still the fifth highest grossing movie of that season, of that year. And that's pretty amazing. It is, yeah. And I know I... I'm a bit younger than you, so I saw it when it was on TV. I never saw it in theaters, but it's one of the... There are a few shows that it was one of those that I had to watch it. It Like, the, my sister and I would alternate. It's like, okay, you get a show, then I get a show. Then you get a show, then I get a show. If Buck Rogers was on, that was right up there with the A-Team. If that was on, I had to watch it. No, you cannot have the remote. I don't care what My Little Pony special's on. I'm watching Buck Rogers. <laughs> So I don't remember how, because I'm pretty sure I saw a lot of it in reruns, but I don't remember if I noticed too much the switch when they went to The Searcher in season two. And in fact, I don't even remember the fact, except for today when I, I watched part of season two, I didn't remember that Mel Blanc wasn't the voice of Tweaky in the beginning of season two. Right. Big change there. That that was a shock. It was interesting to hear, just talking again, I know, you know, we've all met Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray, so it's nice to share stories of the things we've heard them say at different times. But what I always found interesting is hearing them talk about how season two came about, because basically the way Gil Gerard explained it, so it was going to be a series of two-hour movies, but then the theatrical version did so well that suddenly NBC said, oh, no, we want this on weekly. And suddenly they had to ramp up to do a weekly series. But unfortunately, what happened was the special effects crew couldn't keep up from week to week. So the series premiered in the fall. It was a huge hit. And it was just a few weeks into the season, though, before they had to start being preempted and show reruns early because the special effects were behind. And because of that, the ratings slid some. Mm -hmm. Not very much. As he explained, the show still finished the first season very strong. But because of that slide from early in the season to late in the season, the network felt, oh, the show needs to be fixed. So they got a brand new executive producer, 
who hadn't done science fiction before, and he came in and he wanted to change the entire series. Plus, NBC said, you know, Star Trek was on our network. Let's make it like Star Trek. So he had that general idea, plus this new guy coming in who didn't really know a lot about science fiction, and he wanted to change the entire show. So actually, Gil Gerard originally was the only person that was going to come back. They sadly got rid of Tim O'Connor, which was a real shame because he actually had grown up a fan of the original Buck Rogers comic strips and the serials, and was thrilled to be on the show. And as Gil Gerard told the story, the producers didn't even tell him that he had been written out. He figured it out at the rap party for season one because the producers wouldn't even look him in the eye. Yikes. And so they, they hated that he got left off. But at the same time, the new executive producer didn't want Aaron Gray back. So they wrote her out, too, and Gil Gerard walked in and said, if Aaron Gray's not doing the show, I'm not doing the show. So they gave in on that point. But still... To me, it was a bit of a shock, and I always felt the second season missed its mark because it didn't it didn't make a lot of sense because Buck Rogers had been lost for 500 years, and he was finally back home on Earth, and yet then he turned around and immediately left. So it, it seemed a bit of an odd story choice. Yeah, it was it was interesting because it it's it's almost like they went too far because. Most space shows or science fiction shows on TV is some they're going somewhere. They're out in space doing something. Battlestar Galactica was like that. Star Trek was like that. Lost in space. All these shows, they're on a ship going somewhere. So Buck Rogers comes along and they're in New Chicago. And they'll go to other places through the Stargates and they'll fight off the Draconians or whatever, but they're always back in New Chicago. Buck had an apartment in the yes. city. Right. Which he decorated very interestingly, I must say. <laughs> but it's almost like they were stuck in that rut. It's like, it, it can't be a science fiction show. It's not going anywhere. Mm. I mean, even Planet of the Apes, the TV show, which I did like as a kid. I haven't seen it since then, but I do remember liking it. They, they would go from city to city. They were never staying somewhere. Right. That's It's interesting that you mentioned that. As, as Ruth just said, we're fans of both the original Planet of the Apes movies and that live-action series and the animated series. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it you should seek it out and watch it again. It holds up really well, I think. It's, oh, good. Well, I mean, it's got Ryan McDowell in it. How can it not? Yes. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> well, what's interesting with the Buck Rogers, though, you know, that, that second season, the ratings just plummeted. Mm. So uh, the format didn't work. Viewers turned away. So... Gil Gerard knew the show was going to be canceled then, so he just he went to both Universal and Brandon Tartikoff, who was the head of NBC then, and proposed a complete change again for season three that would bring Buck and Wilma and Twicky back to Earth. And he thought what would make sense is if they went from settlement to settlement on Earth, trying to help those people who were lost and uh, you know affected by the nuclear holocaust and all that sort of stuff. You sort of see little bits of it in the first season. So that was his idea for season three, and Universal loved that idea because it would be a lot cheaper to make. But in the end, the ratings were just so bad that NBC still canceled it. So, But you're, you're right. They, they seem to not really have much of a point to season two, other than I think they mentioned they're searching for the lost colonies of Earth, but that's really vague. Yeah, they're, they basically became Battlestar Galactica. A good comparison. Uh, well, Glenn Larson. But, right. yeah, it, it's more or less... Because if you remember the original Battlestar Galactica, every week it was, well, we just ran across this colony of humans that we didn't know was here. Well, it's the reverse. It's now they know their colonies are out there, they're going to look for them. Right. <laughs> but still, you would think there's enough on Earth. Like 
like the proposal for season three, there's enough stuff on Earth. There's there's people outside of New Chicago that you see in The Awakening, the first two-parter, or right. the movie, if you wish, that are out there struggling to survive, and they attack Buck because, well, he's obviously healthy, and we need to get stuff from him. Right. So, yeah, do something with that. That makes more sense. So I don't know. I can understand a retooling. I don't like it because I enjoyed the first season. I enjoyed the lightheartedness with the action. But, okay, if you want to retool it, why go to all the expense of creating new models and new sets and all? Just stay where you are and just go over here. You know, go go slightly to the left. Don't go complete 180. Uh, that's a great uh, thought, Gene, and especially because they certainly, during the first season, were all about repurposing things. That's the Terran starfighters in the first season that they use were actually the original models for the Vipers on Battlestar Galactica. But Glenn Larson decided to go with a design for the Vipers that looked more like the X-Wing fighters. <laughs> so those models got set aside, and then he turned right around and used them in Buck Rogers. No need to create anything new. Mm. Which is another interesting story that we've heard them tell, uh, both Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray, about those models. Because when the series got canceled, there were two of the models, so they each were given one by the special effects team to keep. And uh, Gil Gerard took his and had it professionally mounted on a mirrored base so that it sits in his house and you can you know, see the top and the bottom of it by looking in the mirrored base. But unfortunately, Erin Gray had to confess that she sat hers too close to a heating vent and it melted. Oh, that was <laughs> sad. <laughs> yeah, I, I can just imagine... Because I, there's stuff like that has happened to me, whereas I, I come home, oh, I shouldn't have put that there. <laughs> right. Okay, that's ruined, and it's, but the stuff I ruin, I can go get another one of. Uh, <laughs> she couldn't. No, right. not at all. <laughs> oh, man. She was rather embarrassed about that. Gil Gerard made her tell that to the audience, uh, I think, <laughs> <laughs> voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, but like I, said, like I was saying, I enjoyed the, the lightheartedness of the first season, and I think a lot of that, yeah, it, there's some of it in the script and whatnot, but I think a lot of it came from Mel Blanc because of the, the stuff that he would do with Tweaky. Now, I have not had this confirmed one way or the other, but I was always under the impression that originally, at least in the fir in the pilot, Tweaky didn't actually speak except for the beady, beady, beady. Yeah. Sound effect. And then they realized that's not working, so they brought in Mel Blanc, and he would he ad-libbed all those lines. Uh, that's really nice to hear. It, you can definitely see that in the pilot, that there's not a lot from him. And yet, you're right, he adds so much to the show. Just some of his little one-liners are just perfectly timed, which isn't surprising for being Mel Blanc. But that's a really great thought, Gene. Yeah, it's but you can tell, at least in that one, that the actors don't know what's going on. They're not reacting to what he's saying. Whereas later on, like Dr. Theopolis, the, the disc that Tweaky carries around, he will, he will react. Like in the two-parter Planet of the Slave Girls, at which I had to tell my wife, we are not watching this for the title, we're watching this for the guest stars. Because uh -huh. <laughs> it has Roddy McDowell, Jack Palance, and Buster Crab. Oh, yes. no. But in that, Tweaky is flying a starfighter with Theopolis on his chest, and he's he's saying all these things like, Curse you, Red Baron, which I found <laughs> hilarious. And Theopolis is reacting. He's like, well, I have no idea what you're talking about, Tweaky. Whereas before, it was 
Theopolis was supposed to be C-3PO and Tweaky was R2-D2. You couldn't understand what Tweaky was saying, so Theopolis had to translate for him. And it's interesting that they dropped Dr. Theopolis in Season 2, but I guess that's because they introduced that other sort of pompous robot. Crichton. Crichton. Oh, wow. I, I started to say Crichton, and then I was thinking, wait a minute, that's the robot from Red Dwarf, which is a... <laughs> All-time favorite show of ours. Oh, yes, I love Red Dwarf. It must not be Crichton, but it is Crichton. It is. (laughs) It's a complete opposite of the Red Dwarf Crichton. (laughs) In every way imaginable. But it's also, it's a shame, like you say, that they they dropped Tim O'Connor, because I love Dr. Hewer. He had this, he knew what he was talking about, but then Buck would throw him a curveball and would just give him this look like, okay, (laughs) if you say so. But then they replaced him... With, and I, I have, I have nothing against Wolford Hyde White playing Dr. Goodfellow because, I mean, he's a great actor. The character is nice. <laughs> I mean, it's all right there in the name. Goodfellow. Yes. Goodfellow. <laughs> but he's, he's more of a doddering old man. Whereas Dr. Hewer, he was in charge of the defense directorate and worked with the science directorate. So he, he was his man of power, knew what he was talking about, could make these decisions. And Dr. Goodfellow was just like, oh, that's interesting carving. Let me go get that while I put my life in danger. Right. Yeah. I think you're exactly right about the differences in those characters. Right. And I agree. You know, I have nothing against him. And if that character had been there from the beginning, it probably would have been fine. But it was another example of, when the show made sense in the first season and when it didn't quite make sense in the second season. Because, again, it, they had lots of archetypes, I guess, or, or pieces of a puzzle that didn't necessarily fit together in season two. He was enjoyable, but, again, didn't make a lot of sense in the context of what they were trying to do in season two. Mm-hmm. Not that relevant. Well, I don't think they had a clear vision for season two. I think they had an idea. Now, the idea on its own is good, but the execution wasn't all that stellar. Mm. Because you had Buck on the searcher. He kind of didn't have a position. He was just, he was the hero, but he didn't have a a job. You had the Admiral, who, Admiral Asimov, which I found amusing, because he was actually supposed to be the descendant of Isaac Asimov. Right. And he was, he was good. He, he was, Definitely a take-charge kind of guy, but he's an admiral deferring to Buck Rogers and the criminal misuse of Aaron Gray in the second season. I mean, I know she wasn't supposed to be back, but Wilma Deering going from the colonel in charge of the entire defense of the planet to basically being a stewardess. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that, that's a really good point, too. And it goes back to another story we heard the two of them share. It was nice. We got to see a panel that had Gil Gerard, Aaron Gray, and Felix Sela, who played Twiggy, all three on the panel. So it was nice to hear them actually trigger memories with each other. But it's interesting what you're saying about with her, because you even, even see it in the costumes. And that's one of the things that she and Gil Gerard joke about is hmm. they would call her costumes in season two, Dairy Queen in space. <laughs> they thought she looked like. And it it's a shame because Erin Gray mentioned about her costumes because they were always so super tight. She says, you, you notice that you rarely ever see Wilma sit down, and that's because she couldn't breathe in her spandex costumes if she sat down. But at the same time, at the end of the series, they offered to give her all of her costumes, and she hated them all so much she turned them down. And she said later, what a mistake that was. If I kept them, I could have sold them on eBay 20 years later and made a fortune and paid my kids' way through college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I just, I understand the reasoning behind it. Because 
I mean, this is no, no offense, Ruth, but it was I'm guessing primarily geared towards males. Yeah, right. So that's why. And the uh, the conversation I had with with Michelle about it when we were watching it, it involved okay, uh, exactly how much lubrication did they need to get her into said costume? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I liked that in the in the first season she was able to look good, you know, be attractive, but also be competent, be in command, make good decisions, um, and be successful. So, yeah, so it was a nice combination in the first season. And, and really, that's a very valid point because it was actually a step backward. And this is another thing I remember Erin Gray actually chiming into at the panel because she jumped in to talk about how Gil Gerard fought so much for gender equality on the show, especially early on. He, you know, the show started off and he felt it was too much the damsel in distress. So he always would force the writers to say, okay, you're the new guest starring ladies each week can't just be damsels in distress. You have to give them power and authority. And he would push that. And all the way down to the point of extras in the background that he insisted that there was a mix of male and females. He came onto the set one day and refused to perform because all the males in the background at the computer terminals were men. And he said, that's not what it's going to be like in 500 years. So he wouldn't perform until they replaced half of the extras with women to uh, show some uh, gender equality. But then the second season comes around and it really steps backwards in that approach. And that's another you know, missed opportunity. Yeah, they more or less turned Buck Rogers into Captain Kirk. Because <laughs> I mean, I I watched the premiere, and the first time you see Gil Gerard in that that episode, he's hitting on another uh, female crewman, and then Wilma comes along and is jealous. Okay, that's not the relationship they had, first of all, and that's not how Buck acted. He wasn't uh, a womanizer. He he was, you know, he was interested in women, in Wilma, but he wasn't just going after women. There were plenty of times in the first season where he would actually, you know, turn women down. It's like, no, I'm, I have this to do. You know, we'll talk later, just not now. Mm-hmm. So it, I don't know where that came from. I don't know if that was a writer thing, a producer thing. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Gil Gerard wanting to do it because it, it just turns the characters on their heads. And it, as a kid, I probably didn't notice, but now watching it, it kind of irks me that they've taken such a, a big step back, character-wise, equality-wise, everything in the second season. And that's probably what turned off a lot of viewers, is they, they were oh, Buck Rogers is back, and this is not what we wanted to see. I think you are exactly right with that, because, I mean, the I watched and enjoyed the show as a second season. If it had kept going that way, I would have kept watching it. But I would have always wishing that it was more like the first season again, because I really think they got a lot of things right. And I think Gil Gerard himself probably recognizes that when the second season came along and he was thinking, you know, at least we were doing a lot of things right in the first season. Not everything, but a lot of things. Mm-hmm. They did some things right in the second season. Both of them talked about how much they liked Tom Christopher, the actor that played Hawk. They would have loved to have added him to the show, but not made any of the other changes in season two. Yeah, I could see how he could have been added to the show. I mean, there were so many, so many times when they went to other planets in the first season that they could have picked him up. They, you could have had more or less the same story. It's just instead of going back and forth on the searcher, they're going through Stargates and going to Earth. And that's Earth, a, I like that plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only I was writing 40 years ago. 
<laughs> okay, it's not that old. It's 36. Yeah, it's sadly getting close to it. Uh, yeah. I try to ignore how long ago it was. <laughs> Probably better that way, yeah. But yes. <laughs> when I have a seven-year-old asking me, oh, when was this on? I have to tell her. It's like, well, how long ago was that? <laughs> That's. I was actually talking to... Uh, one of Ruth's brother's boys, so our nephew, he's 10, and he, we were talking about the recent Star Wars movie, and he, he spoke up about he was okay with Harrison Ford's Han Solo's character dying off. He said, because the actor was so old, I'm sure that he's happy he doesn't have to work anymore. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and I just thought, okay. <laughs> yeah, see, Kira didn't see that when, when we went. I had seen it the Friday Star Wars came out. And I apologize for the aside, everybody, but this is just something that happens on this show. You should be used to it by now. I had seen it just because I was in Philadelphia for a business meeting, and then I met up with a friend of mine who was actually lived like a block away from where the meeting was. We had dinner, we had fun, and on my way home, I said, eh, what the heck, there's a theater on the way, let me see. I got, to, got a ticket, saw it at like a midnight show, and then went home. Well, a couple weeks after that, my sister wanted to see it, Michelle wanted to see it, and Kira doesn't care, but she likes going to the movies. So we went, all went, uh, when we, over Christmas, I think it was actually the 26th, and we went to the theater, we had, and Kira had to go to the bathroom. Well, I, I've seen it, I'll take her. Well, it was right as they're setting the bombs on oh. Starkiller Station, mm -hmm. and when we come back, it's when they're already out of that area, the bombs have already gone off. So Kira hadn't hasn't seen that part of it yet. So we're riding back to my parents' house and say, you know, so Kira, do you want us to tell you what happened? She said, no, that's all right. I, I, you can tell me just as long as no one died. Oh. <laughs> Car got silent. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, so. Did you eventually tell her? No, she she <laughs> hasn't asked. I haven't volunteered. <laughs> And uh, not, it's not like she sees a lot of stuff. I mean, she's not online or anything. She's seven. Right. So, you know, she, she's happy. She, she's, you know, watching. I think she, they're playing a board game in the other room now while, while I'm recording. But, yeah, she hasn't brought it up, so I haven't gotten into it. I'm sure, you know, once I get on DVD or whatever, then we'll watch it and I'll have to explain what's going on. But... Maybe she'll have to go to the bathroom then again. I don't know. I was going to say, you should just orchestrate that. <laughs> Here, have something else to drink. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, but back to something that's like Star Wars, and that would be Buck Rogers. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's something you can tell that there is a bit of a Star Wars influence to it just because of the models and everything. And luckily, Glenn Larson wasn't sued over this like he was over Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> With the, oh, you, you can't show laser bolts from coming from the guns, because that's too close. Wow. Lucas would not like that. I didn't know about that detail. Yeah, that's that's why if you watch Battlestar Galactica, the original one, and you see them, they shoot the gun, there's a light on the gun to say, yes, it's been shot, and then there's an explosion way, way wow. down where they were aiming. They could not put the bolts in because they were not allowed to. That's interesting. And I would have just assumed it was to save money. <laughs> As with most everything else, yes. <laughs> but uh, I, I really, you know, Buck Rogers, like you said, it has a lot of comparisons to Star Wars, certainly the timing, uh, that aspect of it. But 
at the thing that I always loved the most about it, like you said earlier, it's a nice, lighthearted science fiction adventure. It was always fun. And even still today, when you watch it, it's fun. You know, if you don't get caught up in, well, effects have come a long way and gender equality has come a long way. If you just watch it for a simple, fun show, it still is a simple, fun show today. Oh, yeah. And I love playing Spot the Guest Star. Because oh, they had yeah. all kind of people on there. This was still, this was late 70s, early 80s, so you still had movie stars and other TV people that would come and guest star on your show. And I love that, because you get, they get to stretch their acting legs, and you get to see, like, Cesar Romero out of the Joker makeup and playing a crime boss. It's a bonus when that happens. That is fun. Yeah, very valid point. I mean, there's so many great guest stars, and you mentioned Cesar Romero, and... That whole first season is filled with guest stars, and so many of them from Batman. You know, you've got Frank Gorshin in an episode as well, and Julie Newmar, Newmar, who's a favorite of ours, and Roddy McDowell we talked about from Planet of the Apes, but of course he's also from uh, The Bookworm on Batman, so wonderful guest stars. Yeah, yeah, I I love that because it's just wonderful to see that. Whenever that special guest star tag comes up in the beginning, it's like, oh, who's in this one? And even when I was a kid, I didn't didn't get it because I don't know who these people are. I just you know that's that's not the Joker. He's not doesn't have a white face. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's interesting seeing Cesar Romero. This is another aside. In a movie that was on Turner Classic Movies, probably like six six or so months ago, as just one one of these days, I was flipping through, seeing what was coming up, and I was like, ah, here's a movie that has David Niven and Cesar Romero in it. Wow. And uh, Vera Ellen from uh, White Christmas, the yeah. uh, one of the sisters. I gotta watch this, and it's a comedy. It's oh, a, what? a Cesar Romero plays the producer of a stage show, like a variety show, and he's trying to get funding. And David Niven plays an eccentric millionaire that is mistaken by Vera Ellen for being a chauffeur. Oh, and says, "Oh no, I need you to play the part of this millionaire who's going to fund this show." <laughs> and it's just such a comedy of errors beyond that, because he's trying to tell her, no, listen, I really am this million. Oh, you're playing this perfectly. Come on. Oh, that sounds like fun. And yeah. David Niven is always so good. I've, I'm going to have to seek that out, yeah, because it's, him and Cesar Romero together. It's called Happy Go Lovely. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I, I do have a, a mind for trivia. <laughs> That's why. No, that's great. (laughs) Well, and, you know, we were talking about guest stars, and it was just interesting in the episodes that we rewatched and, you know, getting ready to talk about this. I know Peter Graves was also in another one. I was always such a huge Mm. fan of him from Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm. But then also, I was thinking it came up perfectly because not long ago, we listened to your episode about the Fall Guy, of course, with Marky Post. And, of course, Marky Post guest stars in one of the two parters as well. So I was thinking, well, if we get a little bit of everyone. And Mark Leonard from Star Trek, you know, we always loved him as Spock's father. So it's great to see him in anything, too. Oh, yeah. He's he's a great actor. And, I mean, he's the first man to play the three major alien races on Star Trek. Yes. Because ah, mo- right. mo- most people don't know that he's the Klingon captain in Star Trek, the motion picture. The motion picture. Yes, absolutely right. You know, he we lost him too young. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well... Unfortunately, because I'm one of these people that loves these old sci-fi shows, more and more you get these actors, they're they're getting to the point where they're not going to be around very much longer. And I'm I'm happy that we're in the middle of February and we have not had the death toll like January. Mm. You know, you're right, Gene. It's sad because of 
you know, just the age we get to, it's so many of the actors and actresses I grew up watching. I have a friend, well, we have a friend, Paul, who's from Belfast, and he's like us, just a big movie and TV fan. And it's a shame because he and I will text each other back and forth, and it's great to always have a conversation. But so often a text I get from him is, you know, another sad loss, and it's so-and-so else has passed away because he's really right on the cusp of that. He knows as soon as it happens. Uh, it, it's it's a real shame. Yeah. Which is why we all need to get out and go to conventions and meet everyone we can. That's right. <laughs> well, n- none of us can do it quite as much as you guys can, apparently. I mean, you you've had you've gone to a movie with Mike Grell. I mean, come on. <laughs> that was an amazing, a wonderful coincidence. I we certainly never expected that to happen, but my goodness, are we ever happy that it I did? Know. Right time, right place. That was fun. <laughs> Sitting beside Mike Grell, and he just said, well, come on with me. I'm like, my goodness, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pinch me. No, actually, don't pinch me. I don't want to wake up from this. <laughs> he would have been happy to pinch Ruth. So. <laughs> no comment. He was a gentleman. <laughs> uh, yes, he was. He always is. <laughs> so now, I know for myself, I haven't really rewatched Buck Rogers, except for when Glenn Larson died, and I rewatched the the theatrical movie. I really haven't watched the show for I want to say like twenty years. How, except for you know prep to do this show, this podcast. How about you guys? Have have you? I know you have the DVDs just like I do. Have you dug it out other than to do this show, or is it just one of those things? That like, oh, well, we have them. That's great, but you haven't watched them. Well, actually. I was so happy when it came out on DVD. So I don't know how long ago that set came out now, probably eight years or so ago mm-hmm. that that DVD set came out. So we would have watched we, them. We now. watched them all then. Yeah, we sat down and we were watching an episode of Buck Rogers every night until we watched all the way through it. So this, and then at the Carolina Theater, we saw the movie, but we didn't rewatch any of the rest of it then. So we rewatched the whole show on DVD once. And then this time we watched, rewatched 12 episodes, I think, out of the 37. So. We're planning to continue watching the rest. And if we think of anything else to say, you'll just have to have us back for part two. Okay, that'll work. <laughs> uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know, and I don't, I'm not going to ruin my bandwidth by opening uh, the internet to find out. But was John Dykstra involved in the, the, the miniature work on this like he was on Battlestar Galactica? I don't think so, Gene. Okay. I'm like you. I, I wouldn't swear to it, but I don't think he was. I remember vaguely reading an article in the past about the fellow who was the production designer for the movie and about the first six episodes or so that sort of established the look of the show. I don't remember his name right now, but I know it wasn't John Dykstra. So I don't think he was. Okay. They may have used his cameras uh, like they did on Battlestar Galactica, but I know that was one of the major coups that Larson had with Battlestar is he was actually able to get the guy from Star Wars to shoot his model shots. And, but I don't know if it was just because that's the technique that was going on then, because a lot of the sci-fi around that time used the same modeling, uh, you know, build detailed models and then have them stationary and make the camera move. So but, it, it, seem, it seems like it's... It's not exact, but it's compatible with that. No, I definitely agree. It's definitely compatible, but you're right. I mean, the look of the original Battlestar Galactica series is unbelievable. I mean, stunning work to think that in 1978 television, they made a show that looked like that. 
Uh, I I used to watch Battlestar Galactica every Sunday night when it was on originally, and I even watched Galactica 1980 when they brought it back as that unfortunate mistake. <laughs> Best thing about that was Kent McCord. So, <laughs> great actor. I'll watch him in anything, but that was tough to watch. But the original Battlestar Galactica series is, you know, it still looks stunning today. And the recent revamp for sci fi certainly looked impressive as well. But you go back and you look at the original series, and it holds up so well. And that opening theme to the original Battlestar Galactica, it's, I mean, that's one of those classic pieces like these, uh, the theme to Superman the movie or mm-hmm. Star Wars. It's wonderful music. I was actually surprised when the Battlestar Galactica revamp didn't use that original theme. Yeah, I did like how they did it in the miniseries where that's the theme that they played. Like, uh, they had the brass band play it as more or less the military march. So it wasn't the theme to the show, but it was it, it still represented there. Oh, thanks for reminding me of that. I didn't yeah. remember. Yeah, because that's, that's one of the things. I, The new Battlestar Galactica, I actually prefer the miniseries to the ongoing series. So the, the first miniseries was great. Revamping it, and at the end, Adama basically saying, yes, we're going to go find Earth. We have this, this goal, and Anne Private says, I have no idea what I'm doing. And leave it there, and then... but. I wasn't all that thrilled with the the ongoing, but I love the original Battlestar Galactica. In fact, I just watched at least the first part of the premiere episode the other day because I can't remember what Michelle and Kira were doing, but they were off doing something. It's like, well, I'm going to put something on. I'm already in Hulu. Well, hey, Battlestar, right there. (laughs) So I just put it on. And then when they... Oh, that's right. They were at a Girl Scout meeting. And when they came back, so I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to throw this on. And then when they came back, we switched to something else because, you know, their tolerance for sci-fi is only so much. Okay. (laughs) I've been kind of overloading them recently with with stuff like Buck Rogers. I'm really lucky. Ruth loves everything I love, so I never have to worry about it. Yeah, well, Michelle likes most of the stuff. And, in fact, some of the times she'll be kind of leery about it and then watches like, oh, okay, that's pretty good. But there's so much other stuff to watch, and if Kira get, I mean, you're talking seven-year-old here. If she starts to get bored, then we might as well just turn something else on, because <laughs> it's just going to be easier that way. <laughs> I mean, this is the kid who, when I was watching uh, Deep Space Nine at one point, because I have to watch the episode before I listen to Listen to the Prophets. Oh. I, I'm watching it, and she comes in from a room, looks at the TV, looks at me like, Star Trek again, huh? I look at her, yeah, and she turns around and walks back in her room. Uh-huh. <laughs> she knew to come back later. Yeah. But uh, you're talking talking about themes. I love the theme music to Buck Rogers. I mean, that's that's one of the ones I knew it had lyrics. Like, you hear the stuff uh, played over the end credits. Mm-hmm. And you hear it, and I, as a kid, I knew it had lyrics. I didn't remember what the lyrics were, but I knew it had lyrics. I think it's because I had seen a version. I don't think they play it in the the TV two-parter. So I must have seen a version of the movie because that's actually sung in the movie over the... I know it's over the end credits because it's the exact same melody, but I think they actually play it over the opening title where, yeah, Buck and the three women writhing around on the... the, Physically on the title of the film. 
That's right. It's their attempt at doing, I think, a James Bond-type opening theme yes. uh, sequence. And yes, I remember in the theater when I saw the movie originally in the theater, I loved that opening title sequence and that song. And then, of course, when the TV series came around, I knew that they wouldn't use that every week, but I expected it to still be in the two-hour movie, and it's not. You're right. They use the opening sequence they use the rest of the season to open the two-parter on television. So that was another uh, thrilling thing to get the DVD set because I finally got to see that opening title sequence again for the first time since 1979. Mm. Yeah, and speaking of the opening of the TV show, that that's one of the classic late 70s, early 80s openings because it's one... I miss the days when you got the setup of the show at the very beginning of every episode. Because back then, it was ep- episodic. People didn't necessarily follow shows every single week. They would come in, come out. Mm-hmm. So you need that setup, but just the the opening narration, and then the s- Gil Gerard spinning as time mm-hmm. goes by, and the little counter at the bottom's clicking. That yeah. opening is just brilliant. I mean, heck, they they spoofed it on South Park. That's, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it was an episode where Cartman wanted to get the new game system, but he didn't want to wait for it. So he, he went and he, he buried himself in the snow to freeze himself into the future. <laughs> so they, they spoofed the Buck Rogers opening with him. And they did all the, the war scenes in the background and everything. It was hilarious. <laughs> and he had to do it like three or four times because it didn't work. I will well, I'm have to sure look. That was fun. I'll have to look for that on YouTube because I definitely want to see that. And you're right. I I loved the version with the lyrics from the movie, but the version that plays at the beginning of the series, especially the first season, it's just perfect. I mean, that build up as he's spinning and the clocks ticking like you were talking, and then that explosion of the music. I love that theme. And when I watch the show, most of the time when I watch TV shows, I'll mute the opening credits because. I don't want to get the song stuck in my head, you know. <laughs> With Buck Rogers, I always let it play because I love that opening theme. And that's a song you want to get stuck in your head because that, that's, <laughs> that's a great theme to have just running through your day. And plus William Conrad doing the narration. I mean, he did the narration for everything back then. Right. <laughs> and that uh, that's one of those. Now, I, I have to explain it to Kira. When, when we're watching stuff like this, it's like if, if you ever watch Thundar the Barbarian. The, yeah. the old cartoon. It's like, in 1994, a comet passed between the Earth and the moon. And it's like, oh. And even as a kid, I'm like, oh, you're, I'm going to graduate from high school. Great. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's like, you know, in 1987, NASA lost, launched the last of its deep space probes. And Kira's looking at me and I was like, yeah, that was the far future back then. Just calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes they, they box themselves into a hole too quickly. And especially I'm surprised they did that back then. They knew Star Trek was still being syndicated 10 years after it got canceled. You get surprised that a show would set itself that close to the near future. Well, it kind of makes sense because you want Buck to be able to make pop culture references. Very good point. That is a good point. So he has to have at least some kind of contemporary thing. Although, when the show was filmed, disco was still around. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So he would have known about that, but apparently not. Yeah, is is it in the pilot movie? I forget which, when Buck's trying to get the orchestra to play, you know, a, a modern or a a 1980s sort of pop song, and they can't quite get it right, and it's like the third try, they're just perfect at it. <laughs> and then he and Pamela Hensley sort of dance. <laughs> yes, yeah, that was, that, yeah, because it was when they were honoring him on the Draconian ship. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, they, they definitely dated it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, what are you going to do? It's it, There are very few sci-fi things that don't get dated. I mean, even as good as Star Trek was, to the point where NASA came to him and say, uh, where did you get the specs for this medical bed? I mean, that's something that we're working on. Mm. and they're still going, their computers were reel-to-reel tapes, so right. you, you can't predict these things, unfortunately. Uh, not at all, yeah, and it, you can get dated very quickly, you're right. Although they had their fir- the first cell phones and the first uh, floppy disks, so even though they didn't realize it. The original Star Trek's, you know, my all-time favorite show, so I could talk about that for a while, too. <laughs> Well, we'll have to. We'll just have to get you back on for another Legends of the Superheroes. Yeah, I was going to say we, we've already come up with Star Trek <laughs> and Red Dwarf and Planet of the Apes. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, none of those would work with this premise because it has to be a character or series that was in comic form before. So we'll just get you on for a regular Hammer podcast and talk about those. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that uh, Shag is still not forgiving me for because he wants to come on and talk about uh, Misfits of Science, and that was a television show only. It was never a comic, so. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Shag. Yes, yeah, sorry, Shag. That's all right. <laughs> He's used to disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know where to go from that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a true statement. (laughs) Yeah, I I can't refute it. I mean, obviously. (laughs) Well, well, while we're laughing, Ruth was pointing this one out to me. It's another fun little story that she remembered Aaron Gray telling about when talking about joking and laughing and having fun. She mentioned when we saw her that she was watching the dailies one time. They were maybe filming the sixth episode or so, and she had gone in one evening to watch the dailies. And she was used to going in and seeing her own dailies, but she went in and they were playing some of the other dailies. And she noticed that when she wasn't on set, everyone was laughing and having a great time. And when she was on set, everything was quiet and everyone was serious. Serious, yes. And she realized that, you know, she's so new to acting and she took it so seriously that she sort of permeated that across the set. And so she realized she needed to change that or nobody was going to like working with her. So the, the next morning she went in and... They started rolling for her first scene, and she told a really dirty joke. (laughs) (laughs) Got everybody laughing, and they had a good day. Yeah, I was going to say, and then she had fun on set from then on. (laughs) That is definitely one way to break the ice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Well, I... I would say I'm all out of notes, but as you know, I hadn't taken any notes for this one. Uh, so is there anything else you guys wanted to cover about the show? Ruth, was there anything else that you... We we didn't really take notes, but we had sort of put together a few bullet points. Did we sort of cover everything? I think so. It was it was really fun to revisit, so I'm glad we were invited on the show. It gave us a, a purpose to revisit Buck Rogers again. Yeah, yeah well, I, I mean, it was your suggestion to, to cover Buck Rogers. I'm glad that you made it. And that's mainly because I had the music playing in the promo for this this that's kind right. of show. Yes. <laughs> well, we love your shows. As, as you know, we ran, we ran that promo on Trekker Talk before, and actually we just posted the new Trekker Talk today, and we have your other promo. Oh, great. Thank you. That episode. So your shows are great. We appreciate you inviting us on. We appreciate you being so patient and helping us out here, getting this going here as our first guest spot so thank you so much gene oh thank you for coming on and just in case the listeners don't know where to find you and they really should because both your shows are great why don't you tell them where they can find trekker talk and warlord world 
Very good. Thank you so much for that. We would have gotten off without doing a plug. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we have dedicated websites for both, so that's a great place to start. So you can go to trekkertalk.com or warlordworlds.com. So there's a website for both, and on those websites, they have links to us on iTunes. They have links to us on Stitcher, as well as links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr pages for each of the shows. And I would add Warlord Worlds covers the work of Mike Grell. And Trekker Talk, we really focus on the work of Ron Randall. So two of our favorite artists, we have our podcast that focus on them. Very nice. And we, we find a lot of way to work in variety. So with Warlord Worlds, it's easy because we cover several different Mike Grell titles. So that's great. And with Trekker Talk, we focus on Trekker, but we cover other Ron Randall titles for instance, we covered his Star Wars comics when the Star Wars movie was out. We covered his Supergirl comics when the Supergirl TV series started. And we're going to be covering some of his Justice League comics when the Batman v Superman movie comes out. Oh, excellent. I'm looking forward to those because I, I liked the uh, I, I love the way the shows are right now. But when you tangent it off, like with uh, Star Wars Evolution, that was really great because i remember reading that comic i still i'm sorry i still haven't read tricker trekker yet but i will get to it i promise all right we'll hold you to that we'll, <laughs> we'll have you on a, as a guest spot once you've read it <laughs> don't hold your breath <laughs> i i'm i'm so backlogged with stuff to read it's not funny uh, same here. <laughs> absolutely and podcasts to listen to it's like that Sadly, I have a job that I can't listen to anything during the day, and Ruth is in the same boat, so it, it's interesting. We get to listen to our podcasts in the morning, sort of when we're getting ready for work, on and the weekend, on the weekends. Just, or you know, if we travel somewhere, yeah, they're great for road trips. They are great for road trips, So, but we get very backlogged and behind on our reading and our podcast listing at times, so I certainly understand. <laughs> All right, well, thank you again, both of you, for coming on. I, I really had a fun time, and we will definitely have to do this again. Sounds great. Thanks. Take oh. care, Gene. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time. Legends of the Superheroes is a production of thehammerstrikes.com and focuses on examining live-action versions of superheroes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send an email to legends at thehammerstrikes.com. Please look for The Hammer Strikes on Facebook and Google+, part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Far beyond this world I've known, far beyond my time, what kind of world am I going? Fine. Will it be real or just all in my mind? What am I? Who am I? What will I be? Where am I going and what will I see?